Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varley, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. I've got a special guest with us coming all the way from the West Coast in Washington State. Pancreatic cancer survivor, seven years going on eight, William Ramshaw. William, welcome to the Project Purple Podcast. Great to be here. So William, for our audience listening at home, full disclosure, how we met, I always say this, full disclosure, that's kind of like a, a, a Dino Varelli term here, but um, I always like to share with our audience how I, I get to meet so many amazing survivors. And uh, you and I were talking about this just a couple minutes before we hit record. I got a Google alert on my email. You have written a couple of articles online and I got your most recent one about, you know, the title is seven years going on eight life after pancreatic cancer. I tracked you down via LinkedIn. <laughs> you weren't on Facebook, you weren't on Instagram, but I found you somehow. Um, and then we, we began a dialogue. We started to talk and the rest, as they say, is history here. And we've got you here on the podcast to share your journey with pancreatic cancer. So it's, it's awesome. I, I always say, you know, social media, the internet, there's a lot of good in it, you know, and that's what I like to take away from it instead of focusing on the bad right now, especially right now with today's environment. But um, I tend to find a lot of survivors and find a lot of good in it. So that's where we'll keep it. As it is customary on our podcast, William, this is your opportunity to share with our audience. I know a little bit about you because we've been chatting here for a little while and, and I've read and done some research on you recently, but our audience, you know, may not know who you are. Um, it's probably the first time they've heard your name, but this is your opportunity to share your background. And as I said to you before, and as we've said to many guests, you can go as far back in your background and you can stay as high level in your background, and then we'll go from there. So with that, the mic is yours. Okay. Thank you, Dino. Um, there's a lot about me, uh, but I, I'm a former military or Navy officer, and that plays into how I've worked with my doctors and pancreatic cancer. I also um, a project manager. I have a couple of master's degrees, so I'm a data guy. And I found along the way this process where your doctors, they tell you what they can, they're hopeful, but quite often they aren't transparent. I, I found that maddening because, yeah, I just, yeah, honestly could sit next to me and have a discussion with me. I go, okay, you might die. Yeah, I understand. But, you know, and I realize a lot of patients aren't that way and they can't handle uh, the truth. Because I found out in talking to my wife, they would tell me one thing and they'd tell her something else. And that was really hard on her because she's a much more emotional person. She's actually a more connected person than me. As you mentioned, my social media, I, I don't have time for social media. So I, I'm on LinkedIn. It's one way to find me. Uh, I write for Cure Today. Uh, but if you reach out to me, I'm always happy to and I do this on and off with people. It's just what I do. 
it's become my life mission at this point is to help other people who are facing perhaps the most horrific news you can receive. Not only do you have cancer, you have pancreatic cancer. And oh yeah, there's maybe five people out of a hundred who see five years, five, five percent. Uh, few see two years and most don't see five. So with going on eight years, yeah, I'm apprehensive, but I'm also thankful to still be here uh, and be able to help other people. So if, if you want to establish a conversation, I'm more than happy to do that. I, I like to do it. Uh, you can read a number of articles I've written on Cure Today. I've also written a little bit for Let's Win, which is another pancreatic cancer not-for-profit. And I, I love Let's for Win, Let's Win, because they've got so many articles about, uh, and they're not sugar-coated. There's so much junk on the internet, you know, that you can't base anything on. And it's dangerous information because if you think this, your doctor is going to tell you something else. You're going to be confused. Uh, so if you want medical grade information that's vetted, uh, I would say look at Let's Win. So let me roll back the clock. It was March of 2013. I went out to lunch. I was working on a several million dollar project. That's what I do. Uh, I went out to lunch for Mexican food with a buddy from work. And I'd been to this restaurant before and it's just a great place. Food's really good, spicy, hot. You know, I, I grew up eating Mexican food. My father was in board troll. He used to get tacos at night. Uh, that was back when you could just cross the border kind of not a big deal. Um, but I didn't feel that great over the weekend. And I listened to a couple other podcasts by Project Purple. It seems like that's a common thread. It's not feeling well. So I asked my buddy next week, and he says, we both had the same special enchilada, chicken enchiladas with rice and beans, and red sauce. And he says, no, best Mexican food ever. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> So I went to see my doctor, who I've seen for almost 20 years. And he ordered some routine tests. And I've come to believe that doctors don't tell you that something non-routine could be going on with you. And this doctor is actually because our daughters played soccer, not, not soccer, volleyball together. It's a ball. Dino's a sports guy. I'm not. <laughs> uh, but... So I'd see him socially on occasion, and we're, we're not friend friends, but we know each other, and he's never held back from me information. So he thought I had C. diff, which is a bacteria of the gut, bad bacteria. So he ordered some routine tests. Well, the next weekend, I, my wife went, was in uh, Seattle taking one of her daughters back to college, and I just felt really bad. I called him up and I said, hey. And he goes, well, you know, he was pretty blunt. Either come and see me tomorrow or, you know, go to ER. 
So being a data guy and analytical, I Googled reasons to go to ER and feeling pukey wasn't on the list. Yes. William, I got a question. Going back to the food didn't sit well. So was this, you said you had eaten there before. Yeah, a lot. So did it not taste right? Did it not sit well digestively? It didn't, it didn't sit well digestively. I just had an upset stomach over the weekend and, you know, I didn't really think I had food poisoning, but I just kind of like, you know, just didn't feel right. Yeah. And so okay. that, that's why you asked your, your friend, like, hey, how do you feel? And he's like, yes. hey, it's the best Mexican I've ever had. So, like, clearly yes. it wasn't food poisoning or unless, like, someone's out to get you or something like that, you know, by slipping you something in your dish. So, you know, but you've yeah, gone there multiple be. times. So it wasn't as if, like, you know, you're a good customer and everything. So that that's just sarcasm. But Well, I, I think I tipped well, too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So anyway, I didn't feel well the following weekend. I mean, I felt rotten. Hmm. My wife was home. So I Googled the reasons to go to ER. Feeling pukey wasn't one of the reasons. <laughs> so I went into his office the next day, and it was full of people. And I go to the receptionist. This is the doctor told me to come in and see him. She kind of rolled her eyes as well. Take seat over there we'll get to you when we can and i, I feel really really bad hmm. and um so i took a seat on the back wall and i'm feeling nauseous just not good and because i've seen my this doctor for a long time and he got me in and i'm sitting in the room and you know i'm just continuing not to feel good it took me to back to an exam room course the nurse says as she leaves the doctor will be right in that's what they all say so I'm sitting there and he comes in I tried to be a little bit upbeat he came in I says hey have you seen my test results yet he looked at me like someone looks at a shirt on sale at Walmart on rack he says dude you've got other problems you're yellow and within two hours well maybe four hours I had an emergency CT scan, and long story short, I felt really bad. They didn't know what to do with me, my doctor. So finally, said, I'm going to the ER. So after nine hours in the ER, uh, they finally admitted me because I I was just absolutely miserable. And within uh, like a day, I had was stented. I had ERCP. The doctor who did it was kind of like the on-call gastroenterologist. I call him the gut doctor. It's an affectionate term because I've become quite intimate with them. Um, I didn't know he took a shaving, a tissue sample, you know, like a couple of days later, he comes in my hospital room because I'm still in the hospital. And, and I had a massive bout with pain pancreatitis after he did the stent. Uh, so I, I was just like, I was on a pain pump. Hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing like this till you've had it. I've had women tell me it's worse than childbirth. And, and I go, oh, wow. Because um, pain pump barely notched the pain. But he comes in my hospital room. He says, I'm sorry, Mr. Ramshaw, you have a malignancy. 
I had no idea malignancy was a term for cancer. I found it appalling that my own doctor, and again, these, these are nice people, you know, they're just trying to do their job. They don't like to tell you, hey, dude, you might die. Uh, but he, he says, you have a malignancy, and he turned around and walked out. And I'm on a, like, a IV line, so I couldn't quite get up, chase him down. And I didn't know that meant cancer. And uh, there was a specialist who was out of town. They couldn't find my tumor. They they did the special, they did CT scan, they did special MRI for looking for pancreatic tumors. Nobody said pancreatic cancer. All I heard during this time was gallstones. Mm-hmm. Ultrasound didn't show anything. Nothing showed anything. And they, they were puzzled because they had a sample from the shavings from the ERCP, but they didn't know where the tumor was. So another doctor who I still see, it, he's become like another best friend. I got all those medical complications. I had one doctor wanted me to see another specialist. I, and he's a good doctor too. And I go, I have doctor fatigue. I just haven't seen their doctor. And I'll get into that. Uh, I am so thankful to be alive. I hope that comes through in my voice. But uh, there's a lot of complications with whipple procedure. So back to the story real quick. I Another doctor did an ultrasound probe, and he found a one uh, – basically a one-inch tumor right next to my bile duct. And that shut down my bile duct, probably saved my life. And also because my doctor, my regular primary care doctor, didn't mess around. I tell him every time I see him, thank you for keeping me alive. Because sometimes people get said, well, you know, we'll have to investigate this. You know, like two weeks from now, I'll get you in for a CT scan. My doctor didn't mess around. Um, So I spent a week in the hospital. I got out. This was with the initial stent. Within less than a week, I got really sick again, and my stent had failed. So I went in to see. Before I got out of the hospital, I met my surgeon because I was getting ready to be the hospitalists in the hospital are just incredible doctors. They're, they're kind of like the specialist doctors. And my hospitalist in the hospital says, well, who's your oncologist? I didn't even know what oncologist meant. And he could tell I didn't know. And so he says, well, let me set you up with Dr. So-and-so. In fact, I think he's on call this weekend. So he calls him and he got me an immediate appointment with him. So this guy stops by the next morning, wakes me up which was okay, sun beaming through a window. I'm in a skimpy, stylish hospital gown. And the doctor goes through what they do on a Whipple procedure. He's a great doctor. As I told Dino before we started, you, know, you have a choice on a surgeon. Do you want a trained assassin or do you want Mr. Rogers? I'll take a trained assassin because I want somebody – who's good at this. It turns out this doctor's, 
I've never had a chance to ask him, but I'd like to ask him when I see him someday how many Whipple procedures he's done. But I'm sure that his skill level, I found out people from states over come to see him. He, he's that good. And this was all by chance. Uh, I'm a person of faith, so I don't think coincidence happened. But anyway, I went to, back to see him in four or five days. I got really virulently sick again. He direct admitted me to the hospital and he redid my ERCP. So I spent another week in the hospital. They put me on TPN, total parental nutrition, mm -hmm. which is uh, IV food. Uh, I wasn't allowed to eat anything. Thankfully, the, the nutritionist at the cancer clinic came to my rescue. It says, because they were getting me ready for my Whipple procedure, which I had uh, in May. So I spent almost a month on TPN, and the nutritionist says, hey, he needs to eat like egg whites or something. <coughs> it's amazing how much how an egg white can taste like a thick cut steak. Well, when you're having TPN, yeah. Yeah, no food. No food, yeah. <laughs> well, you get clear liquids. <clears throat> so the TPN was before the Whipple? Yeah. Yeah, I was lucky enough. In hindsight, as I studied what happened to me, coming up to the Whipple, I just didn't have much the heart to do any research because I knew what I had was fairly lethal mm -hmm. and I knew there was a lot of misinformation on the internet. Uh, but yeah, it, it, some people have to have chemo to shrink the tumor mm -hmm. down before they can have a Whipple I discovered, but only one out of five people can have a Whipple. So that's a gate right there. And even after you have a Whipple, you have a five or 6% chance of seeing five years. Yeah. So it's not a great situation. So just to bring this back to the timeline, so you get diagnosed around March 13th, and then you are scheduled for the Whipple May 13th, May, May 2013. So yeah, May. literally within 60 days, you've gone from diagnosis to um, surgery, which is really good. Uh, I, I know people may be listening at home thinking like, wow, that, that seems like a long time, but I know we've had guests on that, you know, sometimes people get misdiagnosed for quite some time before they actually get an official diagnosis. So kudos, I know, and I'm just bringing this back, you know, your doctor there, the, your general practitioner who re recognized the yellowness right away, the jaundice, you know, as being a sign you know, to get you right in right away. And, and thank God as, you know, as that, that specialist that just called it a malignancy that he, that he found that he may not have had the bedside manner or the, you know, the, the, the proper way to deal with patients, but being able to find that malignancy right away is probably a big win here in this situation, William, just because you're able to go from, you know, diagnosis to Whipple fairly quickly. 
Yeah, it didn't seem like quick to me, but it's <laughs> No, I'm just telling you from my experience and just from, you know, what what I mean, I know from my personal experience with my dad and okay, so my dad was diagnosed in 2008, so what wasn't that far off from 13. I mean, this may happen a lot quicker now, but you know, I think that's the other thing in context that we have to keep in mind is Right. You know, we're going back 8 years. So, you know, I, we've had patients, you know, where I, I, you know, six months, I know my dad, for my dad, he was misdiagnosed for like nine months. And, you know, the, the kicker oh. was when he turned yellow. So it's just crazy how jaundice, you know, is, is usually that biggest indicator of like, hey, something's going on with that pancreas or something's going on with your GI tract or something's blocked there. So it's just yeah. really fascinating, you know, back, you know, again, in context, you know, eight years ago. That, you know, within 60 days you had diagnosis and then into surgery, which is, you know, as you said, the one in five, which, you know, if you can have that surgery, you go for it. Yeah. The sad part is, is that in my reading, because being, I also teach at a local university, I teach business. So being a data guy, I read and I read this, I read that, I read like medical journal stuff. And what I found is jaundice usually indicates your late stage mm -hmm. and you're likely not to be treatable. So I, I was just super fortunate that I was able to be treated and I was, I say only stage two B. I only had one node that was positive and I clean resection and I just, you know, when you dodge a, bullet you hear it go by your head yeah. you, you know it was close yeah um so let me pick up the story real quick and hit some more high points because i think this is relevant because not everybody has the same situation uh the best thing i can offer is always talk to your doctor talking to your aunt Susie who had some other type of cancer you know is not going to necessarily be helpful and going to suspect websites uh, you know there's just good websites out there pancan uh, let's win obviously project purple uh, uh, i'm going to go back and listen to some more podcasts because i'm going like wow this is quite interesting so i spent a month on tpn they finally let me eat just a little bit of food um, and you know, they, I go in, my doctor told me it's like open heart surgery, a Whipple procedure. I now know that to be true. Not that I've had open heart surgery, but as my doctor, you know, they all come talk to you for a minute or two before they roll you in the operating room. He says, yeah, you'll feel like you got hit by a truck after this. Thanks. He didn't tell me it was hit by a truck by somebody who didn't have brakes, was crazed, would back up and run me over again. I I woke up after surgery, it was eight hours or something like that. I was obviously out and I my wife slept on two hospital chairs. She didn't get a cot that night. Uh, I credit her with, you know, being a committed caregiver. I, can't say enough about caregivers. Uh, they also have, I think, the harder job 
where I feel like I, I can fight the caregiver is just there. You know, they're on the kind of like the side sideline watching the game. I can get out and I, I can be in the game and do stuff. I can score points, hopefully not lose points. But I spent about 21 days in the hospital. I had my incision didn't close correctly. Ended up at wound care. I only mention this not not to freak anybody out, but to say, okay, this is a really complex surgery. Uh, they spared my, they can't pronounce it, the duodendron, mm-hmm. uh, which can cause a lot of problems. But, yeah, I went through this, and for two years, every six to eight weeks, I ended up back in the hospital, or at least in ER, with extreme stomach pain, hmm. and nobody could figure it out. They, they would run tests, and everything was inconclusive. And finally, the doctor who actually found my tumor, because I, I went in for a GI, you know, they did upper or lower, and people know what that means, I hope, but they didn't really find anything. They said, well, you need to go see this other GI. He's the guy that we refer all our hardest cases to. And so I went in to see him. It was a doctor. I couldn't have gotten in to see him unless another GI sent to see me because he literally is the best. Uh, and he did some more testing. He didn't find anything, but after I developed like a massive infection, uh, courtesy of my prep for a colonoscopy, which is part of the upper and lower workout workup, I uh, he discovered I had a small leak in my pancreatic duct that had been reconstructed as part of my surgery. So he stented that and restented and restented it. But it just has been like, you know, one thing after the next. I also had a a different duct closed, end up with a biliary drain, Um, you know, after all that. Uh, But once he found this leak, you know, things kind of, the biliary drain was before he discovered the the leak, but that pretty well destroyed me. Um, but once he discovered the leak, my life has been somewhat normal, other than I was I was lifting a tire. Okay, people listening don't laugh. It's a guy thing. And I heard my back like a deck of cards shuffle, and I dropped to the ground, dropped the tire. I had a 70% compression of T12. Oof. Went to see my general practitioner doctor and he goes you have osteoporosis and I go how do you know that he goes well your back is not supposed to do that <sighs> you know the compression fracture <sighs> and I had bone uh, density scan sure enough I had osteoporosis so after seeing several specialists I ended up on prolia which I love prolia because I've been able to get back to life somewhat but my uh, uh, person that treats me for my osteoporosis, um, I forget their technical name, but uh, they determined my osteoporosis was caused by my abdominal 
radiation. So after I had my surgery, I forgot this part, I ended up at 5FU while I was doing 45 sessions, or excuse me, 30, 30 sessions over six weeks. I got weekends off for good behavior. And then I had uh, six treatments with Gemsar every other week. So, um, so just chemotherapy treatment post? Yeah, well, chemo and radiation. Radiation, okay. Oh, the 30 yeah, radiation with 5-FU. 5-FU, yeah. And, and then they did Gemsar. And when I talked to my... Uh, this was enlightening. I, doctors tend to talk over our heads. I, I don't think they do it because they are trying to be mean or treat us like we don't know anything. But my doctor was going, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And I go, well, okay, this is the medical oncologist, the chemo doc. Mm -hmm. I said, well, why not Captain Crunch of Fruit Loops? And she understood my attempt at humor. And she's fairly young. I think I intimidate her on occasion. Uh, but she says, wait a minute. She goes out of her, to her office and she comes back with three pages from her cancer book. I, I had no idea doctors had cancer books. I thought they just made up stuff. Well, yeah, we'll throw in a little of this, a little of that. We'll see how that works. But it's, it's a very defined routine for treating different types of cancer. They don't get to, I'm, I'm sure there's rules where they can vary that treatment, but in every way, my treatment was standard because people ask me that, well, did you get some special juice? <laughs> no, I just 5-FU and Gemsar, nothing more in radiation. But I was able from that to look up the FDA study, which I, that I was treated under. I encourage anybody to do that. If, if you want to know the truth. And I pulled that up, JAMA, and so to the public, and I read it. I understood, I won't say everything, but I probably understood 60 to 75% of it. And the numbers were horrific. Uh, they were, like everybody said, you just, that's why our doctors, I think, for pancreatic cancer people, they just, you know, they have a tough job. You know, they have a life too. And having to tell their patients, sorry, you, you're probably not going to be around in a couple of years is I don't envy them at all. It's, I don't, the chemo nurses were wonderful, but the burnout rate in that group, I go in the chemo room for my six month checks. I have yearly scans, six month checks. When I go to the chemo room to have my uh, IV set, they're, other than the pharmacy tech, there's not anybody I know. Uh, in fact, most of the people in my cancer clinic have changed out because it, it's just dealing with that level of, of just, it, it's heartbreaking in, in the chemo room to see people who can't walk, you know, can barely shuffle and, and you, you can see that things aren't going well. I used to um, say quiet prayers for people. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine. So I am quite fortunate to have survived to this point uh, and be able to write about it, uh, you know, because I, I want to make the journey easier for other people.
I follow Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg very closely. In fact, I, uh, you know, I would say, you know, politically or diametrically opposed, but I quite much connected with her on a personal level because she's an amazing person. You know, she worked really hard, but 11 years. And they got hers at, uh, I think, 2009. She was stage one. Yeah. They found a pancreatic tumor in a routine CT scan. They took it out, but it came back. And I, I realized, I mean, every um, oncology follow-up, especially the ones where I've scanned, are just terrifying. Anybody that tells you, yeah, they're they're walking the park, and no, they're they they're not thinking correctly. Um, but I always, being a former Navy guy, we used to brace up outside the commanding officer's stateroom when he wanted to see us, or she wanted to see us, because generally it wasn't to tell us what a great job we were doing. Um, I always psychologically prepare myself for chemo appointment, make sure I'm ready for those. You know, I always want to hear, everything looks great, your scans are great, we'll see you in six months. But I also know this could be an appointment where he says, I'm sorry, we found something unusual. Uh, you're going to have to re-enter treatment. So I get a question that just came up. When you said they, the doctor provided you with the chemo, chemotherapy information and the treatment protocol and the, the right. medical oncologist. And then you looked up the background, the, the, the information on it. And you said it, wow, it looked really daunting, not yeah. using that words, but so then what made you at that point being a data guy and knowing how daunting that was, what was the trigger or the tip that said, okay, we're going to do this though. Well, you know, this goes back to uh, I was enlisted in the Navy and an officer. You get a sense. I can't speak for any other services, but I get the sense from friends who are veterans for other services. You, you, it's instilled in you to fight. You know, even though your ship may. I had a friend who was on the Stark. It took two X-set missiles in the Gulf. A frigate. They couldn't go from the stem to the stern, from the forecastle to the fantail. The fires were raging. Twenty some sailors died as a result of that, but they fought through. They saved the ship. And I think I appreciate your question because I I don't really think about that. It was just like okay, you know, I'll fight. You know, I I'm not going to just go and. This happened so quickly, I didn't really look up some of this information until I was post-Whipple. And I was, and usually in, in these chemo books, the doctors have, they reference the FDA. I read the footnotes I'm reading. That's how much of a data person I am. And I saw this footnote referencing this FDA study. And so I Googled it and that, that helped me immeasurably. Because there is two trends, and I'm not not medical in any way, but there's two 
types of pancreatic cancer. I think it's islet or islet, uh, which Steve Jobs had. But there's neuroendocrine and uh, endocarcinoma, adenocarcinoma. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I have the endocarcinoma mm-hmm. type, and the survival rate on that is just really bad. But having the FDA study allowed me to focus where I was going, what my future looked like, and I have three daughters. None of them were married at the time. I didn't expect to be there for any of their weddings. In fact, I did what any data person would do as I went out and updated my will and did a bunch of other, you know, I was also a financial planner after I left the Navy for a while, so I made sure things were, at one point I, I wanted to be a state's wills attorney, but I decided against become a lawyer. All my lawyer friends know you're crazy. Uh, but I have enough of background in that sort of thing that I, I just wanted to put a bow on things so that if my wife had to press on without me, you know, she would know where things were or stuff like that. Yeah, I, I will tell anybody listening to this is you, you, you need to have an estate plan. You need to have a will. It needs to be clear what your last desires are. Fortunately, two of my three daughters are now married. I have hopes for the third one. But I've been to two weddings and uh, they've been amazing events. It's pretty special. I, I want to jump way back. So sure. before March 2013, I know you mentioned you were in the Navy, you were a financial planner, data, teaching, all that stuff. Family history of cancer on on your family first, but then also is there was there anything else medically, William, that maybe twenty years ago? And and I know this is a loaded question, and sometimes this is a hard question when we ask this, you know, because hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? And you can say, you know, oh well, I had this GI episode, you know, when I was you know twenty years ago, and it lasted for a couple of days, and nothing ever came about it. No, I I wish there was some warning signals. Uh, my can my family history of cancer is not really horrific. You know, just, just here and there, not not like everybody had breast cancer. Everybody, you know, no pancreatic cancer. Like no one in not the that I'm aware of. Uh, the only thing. You know, my wife had noticed I wasn't eating as much. I, I was like 300 pounds uh, when I, for pancreatic cancer, I now can wear skinny jeans. <laughs> One of the benefits. In them. Yeah. Uh, but I'm about less than 200. I get concerned. I can't gain weight, which is a weird deal. Uh, That's a good problem. Yeah, well, I, I have to take digestive enzymes mm-hmm. to make sure that I, and they're quite expensive. Fortunately, I have decent medical insurance that covers them. I mean, it's like $2,000 a month. Pharmaceutical companies are making a killing. I'm glad I have these, but um, so I had, a, I've always had a cough. I still have a cough. 
and I finally got my general doctor to refer me to see a ENT, ear, nose, and throat specialist. And he, this was like a year before my pancreatic cancer, he diagnosed me with GERD. I think they diagnose everybody with GERD, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just something that's, you know, gastrotic, you know, inflames your throat. And so he put me on a, a meprazole. But other than that, until I got sick after the Mexican food, there was not really anything I could think of that was like, danger, danger. In fact, I, I, one thing I'll bring up that I think is relevant, uh, about two years ago, my, my oncologist, who I still see the medical oncologist who did my chemo, she mentioned to me, because I always quiz her on stuff. She's quite patient with me. And, uh, she knows my personality. Uh, I says, well, what else can I do? You know, what can I do to remain cancer-free? And, you know, I always get the same sort of stuff. Well, eat right, get enough rest, mm-hmm. drink lots of water. It's very seldom anything that's very actionable. And, but she says, well, we can order some BRAC tests. And uh, so I did the BRAC tests. And they came back negative. I let my daughters know. Sorry, I'm having trouble hearing you. Uh, we, my daughters, fortunately, it was negative. And uh, so I am planning on later this year doing more genetic testing. Mm-hmm. I, would, I encourage anybody listening to this podcast, go to webinars. Um, from medical institutions that offer and cure offers some very good webinars. Um, but the general idea is, is that you get some information and they now test 40 to 60 genes, uh, typically. And if you have any history of cancer, you've had cancer, Generally, your insurance, if you have insurance, will pay for these tests. They used to be really expensive, and the cost of genetic tests plummeted down to. Uh, That's hundreds of dollars. I mean, there's there's some companies actually that will do it for free, actually, if you qualify now, from my understanding. Right. Um, we work with many centers uh, across the globe. Uh, with genetic testing. I mean, the genetic piece is really fascinating. Um, it's good that you don't have any of the genes right now um, or that they've identified. And that's that's really the, I guess, the, the, the key term, identified. And I think this right. is the cool thing with technology is that as technology advances, you know, there's these um, insignificant variances or variances of insignificance. Um, we we don't know what they are. And many people who have uh, a family history of cancer um, don't have any of the expressed genes that we know cause these cancers, but they have these unidentified variances. And so, yeah. um, you know, genetic testing is actually really fascinating. We've done a couple podcasts on that. And, you know, it's kind of a, it's this, this new realm of, of science that's really exciting. I think it's moving really fast. And, you know, with pancreatic cancer, we know that 10% of the cases worldwide are from some sort of genetic mutation. So that's something that just in the last five years we've discovered, or not we, but but science has discovered. And I I think that will continue to 
increase as we learn more and more and as you know science continues to advance but to right. your point it is important you know especially you know in 13 there wasn't genetic testing and to your point like it was i remember because my mom you know as i mentioned uh, breast cancer survivor you know she uh she wanted genetic testing back in 2011 and got denied you know but then when she was in re-diagnosed in 16 yeah they were like hey here you go. You can, you have, and now it's, now it's required, you know, now as of 2020, um, it was like late 2019. If you walked into a medical center and you were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, they had to genetic sequence that tumor to see if yeah. it was a, a BRCA or, um, one of the other mutations and the yeah. reasoning behind that and this is the exciting stuff, William, you know, that is happening in the space. I know you and I were talking on, you know, before we hit record about the space and, and you know, the, the challenges that the space has is that we know with certain gene mutations, the BRCA mutation in particular, there's actually a treatment protocol that does really well for most patients with a BRCA mutation tumor. So that's a yeah. game changer, you know, and, and hopefully we get to the rest of the disease and the space and learn, and, and that could be kind of the bridge to get to that. Um, but, you know, genetics is really a fast mover and, and something that, um, you know, for our audience listening home, it's, it's a really important piece if you've been diagnosed recently. And if you were diagnosed years ago before there was genetic testing, go get genetic testing, just like you said. Yeah. That's powerful. Well, one of the things I've discovered, because I get data guy, I discovered, you know, now they genetically profile tumors. When I was resected in 2013, my tumor was not profiled. I discovered they still have it in the deep freeze, but in consultation with my doctors, they says, well, you know, it really is not valuable information for us at this point to have that profile. I was working with Cancer Commons and they were, it's another not-for-profit, very good. Um, and after talking to my doctors, they were pretty clear that if you have a reoccurrence of cancer, we'll be very interested in profiling a new tumor, but your old tumor is kind of like, you know, it's in the so I got a couple questions here for you. Sure. Some things that came up. You talked about the scan and I call this like we throw air quotes in here, scan anxiety and, and oh, yeah. going through that. And you said, you know, people who, you know, say, oh, it's like a walk in the park. That's, that's baloney. <laughs> and I, I believe you because I don't think it's a walk in the park. Have you found, you know, now you're going on eight years and you've mentioned the five-year mark a couple of times, which we know is, is a big thing um, for those listening. That's, I, I think, you know, from a medical community, you look at, you know, five years is, is, you know, really being, you know, no evidence of disease. Like you made that benchmark, which is big because then statistically the numbers go down for reoccurrence as you get longer in the, in the survival game. But have you found things that have helped that anxiety over the last eight years, ways to cope with that? You know, obviously I mentioned this earlier, uh, faith is part of what I do. 
and I'm not a super religious sort of person, but I believe everything happens for a reason, and even pancreatic cancer. And part of it is you deal with the cards you're dealt. Uh, I never, I had it for years, never read it. The last lecture, excellent book, and he talks about that dealing with the cards you're dealt. Randy Pausch. I, yeah, yeah I, I've subsequently read numerous memoirs on cancer, uh, trying to understand how, because I'm a writer at this point, it's my life mission, and I wanted to understand how people tell their story uh, without being morbid, uh, because this whole pancreatic cancer path is is just horrific and but you learn things and, and writing has been a way that I've also calmed some of my anxiety and part of it is just being who I am I, I literally could sit myself next to myself have a conversation because I realize I I still could die from this you know but yeah I've been given eight years uh, when a lot of people don't see two, um, yeah, I need to make those years count. And that's one of the reasons why I agreed to sit down for this podcast is I want to help other people. Before I forget completely, one book I read, which is not even about cancer, is Into Thin Air. I read it about a year ago. and It's about a, uh, uh, it's by uh, John Krakauer. It is, yeah, I picked it up in a used bookstore, and I'm reading it, and I go, this is just like fighting cancer going up on a mountain. You train for years. You spend tens of thousands of dollars. You risk your life, you know, and, and for those people listening, in 1996, there was a tour up to Everest, you know, a mountain near expedition, and when they were extending the mountain, they got caught in a huge blizzard and 12 people died. And a lot of these people were quite experienced mountaineers. And the book is just absolutely uh, enlightening. If you, because I never read it as like a cancer book. I read it as an adventure book, but I've also written about that on Cure Today. Uh, what I learned from that. Uh, it's, there's just nothing like, yeah, these people are perfectly healthy and most of them perfectly sane and they climb a mountain in some cases spend up over a hundred thousand dollars to head up there with only a promise to summit they're not necessarily going to summit because there's only a few days each year with the weather and quite often they're turned back just feet from the summit because the weather changes so um yeah, it's an inspirational book for a lot of reasons. That's a great correlation. I mean, if you think about it, and uh, you know, your your feet from the summit, and something that you train, and you spend a lot of money, and you train, and, and you know, you, you just you get put pulled away, like you got to turn yeah. around. And you yeah. know, with with this disease. You know, you said that before and I, and I made a note here and, you know, think about that. Like people are in it and you can get feet from the finish line or feet from the summit and then just get turned away. 
But yeah. then you have the opportunity maybe to go back up, you know, maybe the next day or the next week or the next month. Right. You know, and, and so it's just in a, it's a powerful correlation there and a, and a great example. Um, you mentioned writing a lot. Was this something that, you know, you when you were in the Navy, um, you know, was writing something that you've always done your whole life, William, or was it something later in life? No, I've I've always done business writing and writing reports in the Navy and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And these are writing that people don't have to read or people have to read. Excuse me. I yeah. got it mixed up. When you're writing for an audience, people can read the first paragraph of what you wrote and says, this guy is a loser. He has no <laughs> idea what he's talking about. And they're gone. Uh, so you learn techniques to tell your story and uh, tell it in an even-handed way, a truthful way. And that, that's why I focused on, I've read like, literally I have a bookshelf here in my office. I have like 50 books and growing of books I've read on the craft of writing, learning to tell my story. And I, I just really enjoy it. I, I'm not a fiction writer. I'm a nonfiction writer. I don't read fiction. Uh, I don't really understand fiction. I, I, I like to read true stories. That's why I enjoyed Into Thin Air so much because it's such a great story about how these people, the remaining people on the expedition survived, how they survived, what they went through to get back down the mountain. Uh, very similar to a cancer journey. So with the, with the writing, have you, I know you, you talk about your family originally before with your wife and your three daughters. Did you ever think, or has this ever come to the, you know, we talked a little bit about this before we hit record about these podcasts and how some of them have been kind of like this legacy for people, but with your family, and also, you know, with, with what you're doing and raising awareness and sharing this, has, has it ever thought in the back of your mind is the writing that you're doing is part of the legacy that you're leaving for your wife and daughters? Yeah, it's, it's, it's come up because my daughters get concerned that I'm writing about them. So I have a, I've negotiated a truce <laughs> that I mainly write about me, not them. Uh, you know, occasionally I have to tell a story in my writing about one of my daughters, try to avoid my wife because she's, she's much more of a private person. I, I made an agreement with myself when I started writing, okay, I'm giving up my privacy to tell my story, but weighing the benefit to others, mm -hmm. what I hope is a benefit. But yeah, I realize it's a legacy. One of the, my favorite writing books is by Margaret Atwood. It's called Negotiating with the Dead. And one of the reasons why people write is to leave a legacy. Mm -hmm. And I, I never really thought of it that way until I was reading her her book. And I realized, okay, this is part of my motivation. I've written a memoir about what I've endured, but I'm still working on it because it's still too, it's more of a spiritual memoir. It's still too cancer-centric. Because millions of people suffer from cancer. But I think it's 
what we come to know about ourselves, who we are uh, as a person, especially for the male audience out there. First thing we ask another guy is, what do you do? It, it's, it's the standard thing. And uh, women ask, how many kids do you have? Mm-hmm. That's their standard sort of thing. It's like a measuring but stick. There, yeah, there's an identity of who we are with what we do. And part of what I've had to come to terms with is although I'm still a college professor, I'm still a project manager, I'm also this third person who writes. And why do I write? The motivation is to help others. You know, I hope. Occasionally I hear from a reader, but usually it just goes out there and, you know, they track my read statistics and, you know, they, I'm a technology person. So I, I know they t- track views and everything. You're fired. Nobody's reading your stuff. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I got a couple questions left here for you and then we're going to sure. share. I know we shared some stuff in the beginning, but we're going to uh, share where people can connect with you. This question comes up often and, and, you know, maybe you can look back through the eight years that you've been gone through this. And, uh, I know we haven't talked about this, but love to hear your feedback on. And the question is, and this could be family, close friends. What was the best thing that, you know, a family member or close friend did for you during this time? And I'll just phrase this because, you know, a lot of times we get the calls here at Project Purple, hey, my neighbor just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. What's the best thing I could do for him? Should I bring him a meal? Should I, you know, send him a blanket because we have free blankets? Um, Should I go over there, first of all, or how should I approach this? And I I think that's a question that, you know, our audience probably has because I I think it's, it's it's a challenging one. Well, it's, it's really hard to talk to a cancer person. And I've, I've struggled with pre-cancer. I've struggled with post-cancer. Um, I, I've lost friends who have died from cancer. I've lost friends because of my cancer. Because they see me. They don't know what to say to me. So they just avoid me. I think the best thing I could say is to somebody that wants to help somebody with any type of cancer, even pancreatic cancers, acknowledge it. Acknowledge the elephant in the room. You know, don't talk around it. You know, you know I'm, I'm sorry to hear you were diagnosed with XYZ cancer. I want to help however I can. Uh, don't go down the road of my uncle had whatever cancer and he did this, he did that. Every cancer is significantly different and every cancer is treated differently. Uh, I had one neighbor who was a pharmaceutical sales person who I was pretty open with because he had been an RN. And we, we talked fairly openly, openly about my diagnosis and, you know, he would come and mow my lawn on occasion. You know, stuff like that. Just show people that you care about them. You know, and if don't wait for them to ask for help, because especially if they're male, we tend not to ask. Uh, it's it's 
you know, one friend I've had from a couple companies ago, we still get together for a monthly lunch. You know, he's hung in there with me. Uh, he asked, you know, we're, we've been friends for like 10 years longer than that. Even when we worked together, we used to get together each week for lunch. And we had a rule to talk about work. We talked about everything else. Uh, you know, he's just been an amazing friend because he's hung with me. Just, you know, his friends will depart a cancer person because they just can't deal with their own mortality. It's not because they're no longer your friend in spirit, but we remind them that they're going to hit, get hit by a bus. We can name our bus. We can describe it. We, we smell it as the fumes come through the air and the, the gravel crackles under its wheels. You know, we can describe our bus and they, they know their bus is out there somewhere. And so it just is unnerving for them to be around somebody that's a cancer survivor because they go, you know, you could go to your oncology appointment next week. I have one in a couple of weeks. I think it's going to be all good, uh, but don't know. Um, but it's on my CA-19, it's eight, which is low, uh, mm-hmm. normal. Uh, I never had a elevated CA-19, even when I was initially being treated. That's one of the reasons why they didn't necessarily think I had cancer until they found the tumor. Um, but yeah, just, just don't wait to be asked. Just do simple things. Don't hide and dodge from the elephant because the elephant's there. They know it, you know it, and you talk about the weather and how the kids are in school. You know, just, just get out and open. Just but don't dwell on it. They'll they'll take the lead if they want to talk about it. Some people want to talk about their cancer, other people I talk pretty openly, but other people don't really want to talk about it. Powerful. I've got to just mention an observation here and, and maybe just talk about it. So here's my notes as we're on video. So we're showing all these notes here. You've had eight years. I know you've wrote a lot about this. You've written about it. But here in the hour and a half that we've been talking, through my notes and your background, you were in the Navy. And I, and I asked you that question, you know, when, when uh, the doctor told you that information, how did you react to that? And you, you went back to that Navy experience. You're a big data guy. So looking at the data, you did that with this. You were a financial planner at one point. So when this right. happened, you kind of put things in check. And I know you, you, you've talked about kind of restacking your priorities. Right but you took that financial planning experience that you had. So all these life experiences, and I guess what I'm trying to say here, William, is there's like this path that you're on and I go in like on an arc, right? Right. When you get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, these things that you did throughout your life kind of prepare you for that battle, the ultimate battle. 
Has that right. thought ever crossed your mind? Have you ever thought about it that way? I mean, thinking about like, hey, if I wasn't in the Navy, would I have that bravado, that gumption, or that that internal fortitude to continue to fight because of what you experienced in the Navy? If I wasn't the experience in the financial planner, would I know right away to like, okay, now I got to take care of this. I got to plan. I got to restack my right. priorities. I, I've i never really thought of it that way. It's, it's a nice hindsight, but I think whatever the person is who's facing pancreatic cancer or another cancer, you bring to the battle what you are. You know, if, if you were a stay-at-home mom or you were an executive at a company, uh, you are who you are and Pancreatic cancer is not selective. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, an amazing person. Steve Jobs, another amazing person. Uh, Randy Posh, you know, numerous people. There's websites that talk about the famous people who died of pancreatic cancer. Patrick Swayze, the guy that played... Uh, Alex uh, Trebek. Yeah, Alex Trebek most recently. Uh, Congressman uh, John, John Lewis. Lewis. Yep. Yeah, there's there's a guy that played uh, the Matt Cartwright on Bonanza. Yep. His name, but you read about all these people, <coughs> whether you're a a uh, just a working guy, uh, you know, wrench turner, you know, pancreatic cancer doesn't differentiate, and you have to bring your best of who you are. You're, you're, you're forced in the situation. Whether I had a financial planning background or was in the Navy, I, I still, you know, would have to come to terms with this. If I have a reoccurrence, it's occurred to me, will I seek treatment? You know, I don't know. You know, I had, massive complications from from my Whipple. Uh, I'm, ha again, very happy to be alive, but a book a friend recommended, I recommend to your listeners, is Being Mortal by Atul Gwande. Mm -hmm. I mean, he states, a very good writer, but he states it very clearly. Do you give up your quality of life for extended life? Or do you extend your life and end up with like zero quality, quality. of life? Yeah. And I think he, it's the best book I've read. I've read several of these books, unfortunately, but of, of the ones I've read, this, this is the most balanced. He, his parents were both medical doctors. Yeah. He's a medical doctor. It's, it's just an excellent book if you're trying to figure this out. I've read it, so I, I second that notion. It's a great book. Someone recommended yeah. that to me a couple of years ago, and uh, I read it right away. Last question for you, and sure. this is always a, a loaded question, as I say. Um, there's no right or wrong to this answer that you'll give me in our audience, but what is your definition of pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? Probably two words. It sucks, uh, but it it brings you to your knees, both figurative and literally, because you realize it wasn't until 
after the five-year point, I began to even take it, pour out. Yeah, I've lived with it hanging over me. You know, every my oncology appointments are still still terrifying, but back then they were beyond terrifying. It's like that movie, that moment in a horror movie where the music goes dun 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 dun. dun. You go, don't go in that room. And go turn you know, around, turn around. Yeah, I don't watch horror movies, but it it. It, it's only been in the last couple of years that I've finally been able to take a breath. In fact, I mentioned my general practitioner because I've gotten like really very, I just, I admire my doctors, but they're not good about explaining stuff. I asked my main oncologist, well, what, what about this? What about that? And she got aggravated with me. She says, you always ask me that. I go, I don't ask you that. And I never asked her, but I'm sure she gets asked a lot, and I blended into all the other patients. But my main doctor, I asked him, I said, I know this is a hard question for you. I says, what? This is the best answer I ever got. What is my prognosis? You know, I know that you don't, you can't say what's going to happen. And he says, well, Bill, if you've done your bucket list, do it over again. And this has been the best best advice I've gotten from any of my medical professionals, because most of them just won't answer the question. They, they go, well, we don't know. Okay, I know you don't know, but give me an idea. You have a lot of years on me. I, I have zero medical background. I don't even, after high school biology, I never took another biology class. Um, I don't even know that the plastic dummy we dismantled in biology class even had a pancreas. I didn't know what it was when they told me I had pancreatic cancer. It's inside of me somewhere. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's not the definition, it's the learning. You, you learn who you are and for me, I've learned I can do far more than I thought I could. That's why I enjoyed Into Thin Air so much. Because when you're up on a mountain and you, if you sit down, you're not going to stand up again. And you just are, everything is gone. You know, you have no strength. Uh, that's kind of like it, what it is, you know, for a lot of cancer survivors especially pancreatic. You just got to keep going. It's awesome. So powerful. Last thing, I know we mentioned it before, but if someone listening to the podcast is inspired by your story, maybe they're going through it right now, they want to reach out, connect with you, learn more. You mentioned you've written for Cure Today. You're on Let's Win, which both can be accessed via the World Wide Web. But if someone wanted to reach out and email you, I know I found you on LinkedIn. Is there is that the best place for people to connect with you? That that's the best place. I'm a, I spend about one second a week on Facebook because I just I just can't deal with it. Yeah, uh, I just choose not to deal with it. Let's put it that way. I you know I I just don't have time for all the drama. Uh, I'm on Twitter a little bit, but not much anymore. I need to get back on. But 
LinkedIn is usually because I spend about an hour a month there and if somebody tries to connect with me, it emails me directly. And, and I'm, I, I, I love to talk to people. I, I've had the opportunity to connect with a couple pancreatic cancer survivors and, uh, I always want to, uh, I never offer treatment advice because that's, I'm not medical, but I, and I don't offer fake encouragement. We can all work harder or we can whip, whip it, you know, no, it's really hard. And it's going to be hard. And, you know, the best you can do is, is, you know, find your, find your, uh, try to work, remember, find your tribe. Because there's people around you. And a nurse, when I was in getting, during one of my infection episodes, I was getting infusions of, of antibiotics. And one male nurse, he's older, he goes, there's people around you who really help you. Just, you know, they'll, you know, just find them. And I found people in the medical community who, who I stay in touch with even to this day, who really helped me. There's friends, there's family, but you want to stay away from the people who tell you stories about all their relatives died from cancer. It is, it's just not useful. Yeah, they mean well, but it's not going to help you, especially for people who onboard that stuff. You know, all of us think we don't, but we all do to a degree. Let's find your tribe. I love it. I love it. William, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. It's been an honor to, to share your journey with our audience. And what you just said is, is so powerful in finding your tribe because uh, you know, no one fights alone. I know we've talked about this often on our podcast, but you know, find people that will stand by you and get you through to that finish line, get you up that mountain to the top. Right. And don't forget your caregivers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you to our audience for listening at home. If you like this episode, feel free to share this episode, download it wherever you listen to podcasts, and until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm-hmm.